be in prayer once again. Father, as we once again uh, delve into the thought of the greatness of your love for us, a love that is willing to forgive, a love that is willing to cover over a multitude of sin, we pray that your love would draw us, Lord, closer to you today, that we might have hearts that respond similarly in love, in response to your love. And we pray, Lord, that your word would be the tool that draws us into that love deeper and deeper, we pray. May your love be shed abroad in our hearts as we ponder the greatness of your love as revealed in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm curious if you've ever had the experience of being in a restaurant and while you're eating, you look around and you notice that there is an older couple who is sitting in a booth and they are sharing a meal together. But they're doing so in a way that's quite sad and you've noticed it. They're eating in silence. Now I have to say, I don't know exactly what has caused the silence, so this is my own conjecture when I look at couples like that. It could be that one of them or both of them can't hear, so that's possible. But knowing the nature of what many people are like, as you look at the gentleman, he's there, he never looks up from his plate. He is just constantly looking down and staring at his plate and eating. She, on the other hand, will take a bite of food and then look off into the distance, looking anywhere but at the person who's sitting across from her. To me, it's their body language that says a lot. But more so, it's sad because this particular couple or the ones I've seen, they are eating together, but it's as if their hearts are a million miles apart. And I wonder to myself, what has led to this relational standoff? What is it that's happened? How could a couple who at one time must have talked rather freely together? There must have been a lot of give and take and conversation at a time in which they enjoyed each other's company, even to the point of saying, we want to be husband and wife. And what is it that now they've reached the point where there is a wall that has been built between them? I call it the wall of enmity. The wall of resentment has now been built brick after brick after brick. <clears throat> and both of the spouses in this, in this couple, they have become now willing to adapt to the new normal. That the normal now is to just leave this wall in place and deal with each other by avoiding each other. Neither spouse seems willing to admit their wrongdoing and both insist that the other probably would be the one at fault. There is on the part of both an unwillingness to forgive. And now they merely coexist. And clearly, if people reach that stage in relationship where there has been a wall now that has been built between two people, a wall of resentment, a wall of bitterness that now is in present, there will be a number of destructive sin patterns that will continue on as long as that wall is in place. As I've thought about that, I've been meditating in my 
quiet times in the morning uh, ever since I started this class of 1 Peter, which I didn't finish. But I've been meditating in 1 Peter, and I've been thinking, did Jesus ever have a wall of enmity that he himself built up against other people? People that really did some despicable things to him? 1 Peter 2, we read that <clears throat> Jesus' enemies hurled insults at him. And yet we read, he did not retaliate. Retaliation, it seems to me, is the opposite of forgiveness, right? So hearts that refuse to grant the gift of forgiveness are characterized by a number of indicators, a number of outward fruits coming from a heart that has become hardened by embitterness and resentment. <clears throat> Here are a couple of them that maybe you're familiar with, or maybe you've actually seen them in the life of somebody you know and love, or maybe it's been actually in your own life. <clears throat> Some of the flagrant ones are rather obvious. There's physical and verbal abuse, which is always, always wrong. There's no excuse for physical and verbal abuse, including hitting and shoving, yelling and cursing. But a heart that's bent on retaliation also may strive to get even, in which the strategy is to emotionally and relationally withdraw. And that's what I think this silent couple, that's where they were in their relationship. It's as if they avoid the other person and they give the other person the silent treatment. I hate to admit it, I've been there. There have been times when another person, perhaps in responding with a heart of resentment, they fall into this idea of complaining against the other person, criticizing the other person who hurt you. And their sarcastic verbal assault is constantly being waged throwing these barbs at the other person, name-calling. Another way of responding out of a heart that's become embittered is that they complain through gossip. So it's not with the person that you're offended with, it's going around that person and seeking to bring them harm by talking about them to others. And so they slanderously dish out all sorts of of uh, words and negative reports about the person who offended you. And the motive primarily, really, when you get down to it, is to gain support for your cause so that people will feel sorry for you and be compassionate toward you. Look what you've had to endure. There could be a number of other things. I'll include, of course, the idea of responding out of a bitter heart with harmful criticism of the other person, constantly putting them down in order to win the argument. Rather than dealing with issues, we attack the other person. The list is endless. The list can go on and on, but you get the idea. And so let's be honest, of course, none of us is immune from this kind of response. Can we sort of start there? <laughs> can we admit that all of us have the potential, if not the actual experiences of these things, that we become easily prone to resentment and bitterness? And that's why we as people who struggle and who have hearts that go astray, that's why we're pointing ourselves to the gospel of this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ points us into the direction of grace and reconciliation. So if you have your Bible, let me encourage you to find your way to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look again at the end of that great chapter. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. 
we're going to talk about how the gospel enables us and encourages us to dismantle the wall of enmity and resentment. As a matter of fact, if we look at Ephesians chapter 3, we notice he says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, why is he talking about grieving the Spirit of God? Why is he talking about avoiding the idea of causing the Holy Spirit to be mourning, in a sense of sadness and grief? Well, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. By the way, wrath and anger, those are the two different kinds of anger. One is an explosive anger that just goes off and just lets the other person have it. The other one is the slow burn anger, the bottled up anger, the resentment and things that just are bottled up, all sorts of of, uh, intense anger that's just never fully expressed. Clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. If that's the way we live, if that's the way our heart is bent and that's the direction of where we normally live every day, clearly the Holy Spirit will be grieved. I think that's what he's trying to say there. So then he points the other way, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So our focus this morning is just to go back again and looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to see how the grace of Christ is to be applied to our own hearts, our own lives, to think about how it is that God deals with us in grace in the gospel, and then to see how that is to begin to affect us and begin to sort of be lived out in our own lives in the real relationships with the people that we know, the people with whom we live, the people with whom we work, the people to whom we share a classroom or in school. So I don't have your outline in your notes, so I'll just give you the outline. I'll try to repeat each point. My first main point this morning is, first of all, what is God's standard of gracious forgiveness in the gospel? We're going to consider God's standard of gracious forgiveness in the gospel. Clearly, there's no way to appreciate the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from understanding our plight as sinners before a holy and righteous God. If we don't start there, if we start with the benefits of the gospel, we start about all the privileges and things we enjoy, that we've lost sight of the fact that we're not going to really perceive the implications of the wonders of God's grace and love toward us until we understand the heinousness of how we've treated God and our attitude toward God and the many ways we've offended God again and again and again. Unfortunately, many of us don't have accurate perception of the ways in which we offend God. Most of us tend to minimize the seriousness of our sin. Many of us seem very comfortable with lowering the standards of God in our own estimation. So we tend to think, well, that wasn't that bad. That was just a little white lie as opposed to sort of a big lie. And so we have our way of trying to grade and try to talk about what we think is really bad versus what's really bad. We naturally assume that we're not all that bad. Of course, we we reluctantly admit that we are not perfect. We can admit that. Oh, yes, I'm not perfect. But in making that admission, we may confess that we have faults. 
But in so doing, we tend to take those faults and then compare ourselves with other people. Yeah, well, I'm, I got this fault, but I'm not half as bad as so-and-so, we think to ourselves. We adopt human standards of what is acceptable before God. And rather than really admitting the seriousness of our sin, we prefer to talk in terms that are much more generalized. We talk about our own failings. We talk rather freely about, oh, I made a mistake. Have you heard these people make public confessions? Oh, I made a mistake. As if they were not responsible for it, as if it just sort of happened and things just uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, was not intentional when really the reality is it was intentional. It's coming from choices that you make. The Bible insists on describing sinners as going their own way. There's a deliberateness to that. We choose to go our own way. And the truth is that our hearts are wicked. Because deep down we have to admit that the fruit of our hearts, that is our deeds and what we say and how we act, what we do or don't do, comes out of our heart. And our hearts often are caught up in rebellion toward God in defying his authority and in really despising the fact that we want to be in control and not him and therefore we are unable to clear our sin record we are unable to resolve our many list of offenses before a holy God and we're unable to change our basic nature and our hearts and until we understand the depth and breadth of our problem of sin we will not be able to delight fully in God's solution. As the great Puritan pastor Thomas Watson once said, this is a good quote, you might want to write this one down. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. In other words, until we understand and own our own grievous sin, and until we reach the point where we are so mourning and we feel so resent, uh, uh, remorseful about our sin and that leads us to repentance, until that takes place, we will never really fully understand nor will we receive the wonders of God's grace shown to us in the gospel. All of us are desperately in need of God's grace, not just to make up our deficiencies, but to cleanse us from all this moral guilt and moral pollution. We need a tremendous supply of spiritual capital to cancel out the debt that we owe to God. And the good news of the gospel is this. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The good news is that God expended his own spiritual capital to pay the debts that we are unable to pay. I wonder if you can say there's come a time in your life as you looked at yourself honestly and humbly, you look at your own responses toward other people, but particularly toward God and realize how you have dealt with Him and many ways in which you have gone your own way instead of following Him and doing the things He calls us to, to love Him, love our neighbors, ourselves. And you have felt a desperate sense of feeling that you're weighed down by your sin. You have felt the weight of all that you've done to offend God. I can remember that feeling in my life. I was a young 
boy at the time, but it was real. It was true. It was disturbing to me. It was something that I just could not ignore. It's as if you're wearing a lead vest with a lead belt and lead shoes and to realize that you are unable to keep yourself up from going underneath the waters of God's judgment. And the gospel says that God in His mercy and grace provides His own sinless Son in love to take the heavy leaded clothing and garments and things that we are, have, are carrying around with us, that are tied to us. He takes those on upon Himself. Jesus takes our sins upon Himself when He died upon that cross. And God's forgiveness refers to His removal of what makes us sink in the ocean of his judgment. If you look at Colossians chapter 2, you reach this amazing statement that talks about how God has given us this gift of forgiveness. Maybe you'll find your way there. Colossians chapter 2, keep your finger there. We'll come to that in a second. God does not just say, oh, dismiss his sin, forget it, it's no big deal, sweep it under the rug. No. Jesus had to deal with and take upon himself the things that we deserve to have as a result of our sins. Through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, God declares us fully forgiven, freely by his grace, to everyone who repents and believes. And those who repent of their sin and believe upon Christ, he will make them right with God they are promised full and free forgiveness. Look at Colossians 2 again, verses 13 to 14. God forgave all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, stood between us and God. And its legal demands, the legal demands were, you must pay this in full. So Jesus addresses that obligation, pays it in full, and thus he sets aside, nailing it to the cross. All those debts were nailed to the cross, paid in full. The debt that we could not pay was paid by Christ. And therefore we are freed from the weight that was drowning us. And grace is amazing because God treated us in this way, in such an undeserved way. He did all this for us, showing us unmerited favor. Indeed, all the sins that are recorded in his book are blotted out, not because we have paid him back for all that, but because Jesus paid it for us when we had nothing to offer him. Now, I want to spend a few moments in thinking about the wonders of this forgiveness that are found in the gospel. And if you've never really received that gift of forgiveness in Christ, you never received the gift of eternal life, I want you to hear the kind of statements that are true about everyone who repents of their sin, turns from their sin, and turns to Christ in faith and trust Him. There's a number of wonderful Hebrew metaphors referring to what this forgiveness is like. I'll begin in Psalm 103, verse 12. Maybe you want to write these down in your notes. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west... East, west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What's he saying there? They are infinitely apart. 
They have been removed in such a way that God's forgiveness is complete. They're not going to come back together. They're not going to come back to haunt you. As a matter of fact, in that same chapter, Psalm 103, in verse 10, we read that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. That's what he's saying. It's as far removed. It's not going to come back and reward you accordingly. The prophet Isaiah refers to another image to describe God's forgiveness. In chapter 38, verse 17, he says, You have thrown, this is you, God, have thrown all my sins behind your back. It's like taking them and just throwing them way over behind him. What's that saying? They are dealt with once for all. It's one throwing them backward like that, never to be dealt with or faced again. Micah 7, at the end of this wonderful prophet book of, uh, book of, of, of prophecy in Micah, chapter 7, he refers to God's forgiveness in this way. Verse 19, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Hurl, I like that word, hurl. Just throw them in there and tread upon them. That's it, I'll conquer and vanquish them forever. Never to be seen again. God's forgiveness is irreversible. It does not come back and haunt you later on and say, oh, well, that forgiveness was conditional. God's forgiveness means our sins will never be dredged up. Praise God. And our sins will never jeopardize our new status with God. Why is that? Because Christ paid for them. They were dealt with in Christ. And that's why Isaiah, Isaiah it's interesting, in all these books of prophecy, God keeps assuring his people, there is forgiveness. I will deal with you in this way. It's like they can't, forgive, they can't, like they can't believe it because they saw the consequences of their stubborn hearts. But he's promising them forgiveness in the gospel. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, God says, and he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. They're completely erased. They are no more. The record is clean. Now here's my point. The basis for receiving this kind of forgiveness from God is extended to us by God based on nothing whatsoever you do or offer to God or pay God or somehow earn before God. It has nothing to do with that because it's coming to us through grace, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The forgiveness God provides to us through His Son is properly described in terms which means to show a person favor or to give graciously something they don't deserve. That's what it means to deal with us in grace. It means that the basis, the means of this kind of forgiveness comes to us through faith. We trust in Christ. The basis of this forgiveness is on the basis of grace. And the condition of this forgiveness comes when we repent and believe. The forgiveness we receive from Christ sets the standard for how we're to deal with others. And so that's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 at the end of the chapter, we are to forgive others just as God has forgiven us 
in Christ. It is complete. It is undeserved. It is gracious. It is nothing short of amazing. So the first question we have to answer is ourselves is, have you felt the weight of your sin? Have you owned the huge debt and amount of offense that you've made before a holy and righteous God? Have you repented of that sin? Have you received by faith in Christ this amazing gift of forgiveness? If that is the truth, it means that therefore you are a child of God, fully forgiven, able to enjoy God. It also means that now there's a, a whole new way of which you're going to live and deal with people around you who similarly are people who have offended God and are in need of forgiveness. So my second point is this. What is the gospel call to gracious forgiveness? The gospel call to gracious forgiveness. I want you to turn over at this point to Colossians chapter 3. Just a few pages to the right if you are in Ephesians still. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 and following. I won't take the time to read the entire section here. It goes down to verse 17, really, <clears throat> and then begins to be applied. But he says, um, <clears throat> as those who have been chosen of God, there's grace. There's grace being shown to us. Those who have been chosen by God, chosen of God, holy and beloved. We are loved by God and we've been set apart unto God. That's our current status. He says, therefore, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now this text, we could easily spend a number of hours for the rest of the day unpacking this, but I just want to summarize a couple of observations here and po point out that he's saying rather than insist on our rights, Rather than insist on treat, fair treatment of someone uh, that our heart uh, has become so frustrated with or angry toward or hurt by, he says, listen, he says, rather than do that, remember, your heart is to be clothed with the gospel. That the truths of the gospel are to, to now characterize or, or, or dis be displayed in your heart, which is the core of who you are, and then that becomes lived out. And so we go back to say, I'm going to clothe my heart with gospel garments. Rather than living with a cold and different heart toward a brother or sister who has mistreated me, who has offended me or sinned against me, he says, remember how God's heart has responded to you in the gospel. And think about what that heart has been clothed with. His heart was clothed with compassion and kindness. He says, now put on that into your heart. He talks about humility, the ability to see ourselves as God sees us, to not think more highly of ourselves than others, to not think that you have ever sinned against other people and what you've said or whatever the nature of the sin that's been sinned against. Do you think you've ever uh, been totally um, guilt-free in the same category of sin that someone else has sinned against you? Be careful. We find that when we really think accurately about ourselves, we realize we are people who have offended and similarly sinned. When others sins against us, we are to bear in mind that we have sinned against God over and over and over again. He mentions gentleness. 
Of course, that's a call to courageously use God's strength to speak words of truth, to hold back the, the tendency or the temptation to retaliate, to use our words as weapons against someone, to beat them down with our words of criticism. Patience refers to the idea of willingness to, to, to do things according to God's timetable. As he says in Romans, to be patient, let God's vengeance be played out. If God sometimes, if the person will never repent, then God will deal with them someday. God will get vengeance, he says. He will bring about justice. We must put up with another person's failings and shortcomings. The gospel declares that we are children of God on the basis of grace. And the same gospel that calls us to imitate our Father in heaven is the same gospel that now begins to sort of clothe our hearts and now begins to show itself in gracious ways as God shows forth a power and grace that is not our own. It is clearly something He has given us as a wondrous gift. God has dealt with us in grace, and so we are to now move and respond similarly in grace. Now, this grace of forgiveness, obviously, is something that we are expected to do, as he says right there in the text. It's sort of the logic of the gospel. But here's a good quote for us. It comes from a book by Dave Harvey called When Sinners Say I Do. I highly recommend it for anyone who's married. Uh, two sinners, every time they say I do, you've got two sinners dealing with each other, and therefore there's a need for grace, there's a need for forgiveness, there's a need for dealing with people who sin against each other in marriage. Excellent gospel-filled book. I urge you to read it and think about it and put it into practice. Uh, there's another good helpful booklet that's on the back table here. I'm just going to plug some thoughtful things to read. How to Be Free from Bitterness is a helpful little booklet, little tract here. There aren't too many back there, but uh, we can get more. And also another book that I can't find in my library. I must have given it to somebody. I always give out books. I never see them back. Anyway, Jay Adams, From Forgiven to Forgiving. From forgiven, that is, God has forgiven me, and now I need to learn to forgive other people. Jay Adams, very helpful book. Here's the quote, sorry, got, I got distracted. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. You're going, duh. I'm like, but many of us don't get it, do we? Think about it. We keep thinking, well, this person sinned against me. Okay, I've sinned against God. This person has sinned against me, therefore I'm called to forgive. And the goal here, of course, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let's turn there just a second. I want to read that text. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul's writing to some people who are on the verge of saying, hey, this person messed up and I am not going to ever deal with them differently than what I'm dealing with them now is, and that is, I am just done with them, period. I'm going to build that wall, or we're going to be cut off from this person, and that's it. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by whom? Satan. When there's an unwillingness to extend forgiveness among the members of the body of Christ, he says, this is a situation where we're going to give an open door for Satan 
to begin to have his influence. He says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. So when we talk about the, one of the reasons why we want to be sure that this issue of forgiveness is something that we devote our time and attention and our heart and our thinking and praying about, is to be careful that if we ever see an embittered heart developing within us, a resentful heart towards another person, remember that there's very likely at that point you're being led by the Satan rather than being led by the Holy Spirit. And so this is an area where we have to be careful not to let any bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, be put, we need to put all those things away because the Holy Spirit deeply mourns when that's where our hearts tend to get settled. Let me just take one more second here under this second point and just explain a helpful point that Dave Harvey develops in his book about forgiveness. And he says this, Forgiveness, in order to flow between two individuals in a relationship that has been restored, where there was a sin against the other person. He says you need three valves open if you think of it as a pipe that has free exchanged um, going through the pipe. You've got to open three valves. The first valve needs to be opened by the person who sinned. That person must open the faucet of repentance and request forgiveness. In other words, rather than the person who has caused the offense go back and say, well, I'm sorry. I just had no sleep and I just, you know, it was a bad day. I'm sorry. We're done, okay? Everything's all right, okay, right? Rather than just say, I'm sorry, which is an apology, the person comes back and says, listen, I want you to, I want you to know what I said was wrong. And what I said, I'm sure, was deeply hurtful. And what I said, I take full responsibility for, and I realize it's caused you a lot of pain. And so I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you to give me the gift I don't deserve to forgive me. You're asking for a gift. I'm asking you to forgive me. That's a request, and that's a humble acknowledgement of wrong. Don't just say, I'm sorry. And look at Luke 17.3, if you don't believe me, but Jesus is saying, the first step in forgiveness means the person must repent. They must show us sorrow for sin. They must admit that it was wrong. And so in order for the process of forgiveness to go, that first valve must be opened. The second valve is the mercy valve, and that's operated by the person who was sinned against. By opening that valve, that person is saying, you as one who has sinned against me, I am going to release you from the punishment of your sins. I am going to make a promise to you in opening this valve that I am not going to bring up this offense and the sin that you've committed, I'm not going to bring it up to you and I'm not going to bring it up to other people going forward from this moment on because that is what forgiveness means. I'm making you a promise and I'm acting consistent with that promise. And by the way, it's not based on your feelings at that moment. If the person truly repents and they've admitted they're wrong and they're asked for forgiveness, then you're left with, I can now choose to forgive them. You say, well, what if they did it yesterday? The same thing. Jesus is saying, if they truly repent, you've got to go down the process of making that forgiveness and gave that promise again. And the last valve, Dave, David, uh, Dave Harvey says, is to open the valve of a willingness on the part of the one who was sinned against to absorb the cost of that sin. That is, there is no longer an attempt to get even. There is no longer an attempt to try to somehow gain justice and 
get back to this person, I have to absorb it. It is something that I am taking on myself. Now you say to yourself, wow, that's going to take a miracle to happen, to get all those valves opened and to have the free flow of what needs to be going through those pipes, the true forgiveness being flowing. And guess what? That's where the Christian says there is power, there is grace, there is hope in the gospel to do what, humanly speaking, is impossible. And my third point is God's supply for gracious forgiveness. God's supply for gracious forgiveness. I mean, when you think about it, and let's be honest, forgiveness is painful. It's extremely painful. It's never easy to absorb the wrong doing of other people and to extend grace instead. But let's back up and remember that God's extending forgiveness to you was very costly to him. It was not something that was just very simply, oh, dismiss it. No, it cost Christ tremendous suffering and anguish on the cross. And at times when our hearts become hardened and we become indifferent and our love for Christ and other people at times may wane, what do we do when it's very difficult to extend forgiveness? Well, I would just say this. Remember the illustration of a catcher's mitt. Now, I've, I tried catching for a little while. It is the worst position in my mind in baseball because the ball is being thrown at you very hard, mercilessly, I would say, along with the guy who tip, foul tips the ball that's been thrown so hard, and that comes to hit you in the face, or you got the mask on, or hits you somewhere in your body, or your hands, or whatever. It's brutal back there. Anyway, so here you are, you're catching this pitch. And suppose the glove that you are using, which is designed to soften the impact of that and make sure that ball gets captured and held in your hand, if you're a person that's had it for a while and you're not taking good care of it, what happens if that catcher's mitt is not properly maintained? Over time, it will dry out, it will stiffen up, it will lose its elasticity, its flexibility. And rather than molding around the hand that you're trying, it's supposed to be held by it, and having ability to catch that fastball and hold it in the mitt, that glove will likely not brace your hand from the impact. It will cause things to be worse. Maybe the webbing will come loose of that catcher's mitt, and it will break away, and the ball will come back and hit you smack in the face. It will increase injury, likely, no longer providing a cushion against the, the blunt force of the ball. And so what do you need to do? A good catcher, every good baseball player knows you must condition your glove, the leather glove, with the proper leather conditioner. Now, I'm, there's a ton of them out there on the market, all these different things to tell you not to use. I'm not going to tell you what to use. But there are these special things you put on the leather glove in order to make it soft and useful in order to perform the way it's supposed to. Similarly, I would suggest that we need the Holy Spirit's soothing oil of grace constantly applied to our hearts so that our hearts do not become hardened and unwilling to blunt the force of other people's sin and to absorb all that. And so as children of God 
who are tempted to become embittered, who are tempted to become resentful, filled with malice in our hearts toward other people, I would urge us to constantly go back and remind ourselves, draw strength from the unending supply of grace that we receive in the gospel, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And to remind ourselves as children of God, filling our hearts and minds with the truth of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says in, in Colossians chapter 3, which is another way of what? Being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit will then be lower likely to control us if our minds are being filled with the Scriptures, with the truth of who we are in Christ, with the truth of what God has done for us in the Gospel. The problem with many of us is that when we have a tendency and someone has sinned against us is that we have less and less time in the Word. We're no longer listening to God. Remind us of the gospel. We tend to think of our rights. We tend to think of this person and what they've done, rehearse it over and over and over again. And we lose sight of the impact of the Spirit of God using the Word of God in our own hearts to keep us humble, keeping us uh, 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 compassionate, keeping us a people who are being led by the Spirit instead of led by Satan. So I would remind us to continually review our gracious work of God in saving us, reminding us of that inevitable drowning in damnation that would have happened to us, but Christ did what? No, I'm putting that on myself, and I will drown for you. And may the Spirit of God then, who lifts us up, who replaced that vest of sin that we were bearing upon us, he gave us a life-preserving vest that we wear, which is the righteousness of Christ, which lifts us up which enables us, therefore, to, to enjoy privileges and blessings every day and the Spirit who empowers us to imitate our Father in heaven. We trust God's grace to forgive us of our sins. And then we count on God's grace to meet us at our point of challenge. The point of challenge is to say, am I ready to forgive? Because sometimes the person is not ready to rebuild a relationship. Sometimes the person is not willing to repent. Sometimes the person is not willing to admit that what they did was wrong. They insist that they never did anything wrong ever. And so at that point, we have to say, but I'm willing, I'm standing there, I'm available. If that's what is ever uh, on your part, you're willing to do, I'm ready to extend that forgiveness. Just like the father was standing there waiting for the son to come home. I'm looking down the road with a heart that's open. So that my heart says, I'm enjoying forgiveness, I'm willing to forgive, and I will extend that forgiveness when that person comes and repents. And I'm willing to say, I will promise you I will not bring up the past, and that sin will not govern our relationship going forward. I wonder if you can say, do you have that kind of spirit-needed softness in your heart that has been conditioned by the gospel? A willingness to forgive? Sometimes forgiveness can be complicated, I realize. Sometimes there's some really awful situations, I realize. Complicated, I realize. But I think what this text is pointing us to is saying, I have a, an openness, an availability, a desire to follow the Spirit's lead as He works in my heart, just as He's worked in my heart. Let's pray. Father, as we enjoy the privileges of being able to call you Father, the privileges of being able to know your love and adopting us and calling us your own,
the grace that you've extended to us and having your son bear our sins and then to clothe us in his righteousness, which we don't deserve. And he took, he took upon himself our rags of self-righteousness that are filthy and disgusting. Lord, help us today to have a heart that celebrates all that. Hearts that embrace the gospel. Hearts that are deeply moved by the gospel. Hearts that are stirring up our faith to trust in our wondrous Savior. and Hearts that truly continually repent of sin turn away from it and acknowledge when we have gone astray. Lord, we come today as sinners who don't deserve to come and sit and enjoy a meal that celebrates your grace and love, but Lord, we do so because you've invited us to. And I pray that as we gather today, Lord, you would stir up within our hearts a willingness to say, Lord, I want to be an agent of your forgiving grace. I want to be a person who is not embittered and filled with resentment, but I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to be an agent of reconciliation. I want to be a person who is showing the kind of love that has covered over my sins. I want to be a person who also similarly is willing to extend to another person the amazing gift of covering over their sin by your grace and for your glory. So meet with us, we pray, as we Reflect upon the wonders of Christ's love for us through his death and resurrection as we gather around the Lord's table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.